Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latina Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is la doctora Jennifer Gomez Menjivar. Gomez Menjivar is an associate professor at the University of North Texas. Her research interests include indigenous sovereignty media, Latin America and Latinx media, digital linguistics, among many others. She holds a PhD in Latin American literature and cultural studies from the Ohio State University. And for the last several years, her research has been concerned with how indigenous and black communities use new media to challenge the typical discussions of minority communities as disenfranchised and powerless. Bienvenida a este episodio, Jenny. Gracias. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? I was born in El Salvador, and I was raised in Los Angeles. I moved to Ohio for my grad program, and I then moved to Minnesota for my first position, and I'm now in Texas for my second. Great. So you and I are part of the Salvadoran diaspora, although we have different journeys. I grew up in Mexico, and you in California. How did this shape your life? Uh, did it inform your journey into higher education? Yeah, it did. It did quite a bit, actually. So just going back a little bit, uh, my family is from El Salvador, but my grandparents, my paternal grandparents are actually from Guatemala. Mm -hmm. So there are many borders in our story. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, you know, that at least every generation has crossed a border. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandparents crossed from Guatemala to El Salvador, to, and they worked as uh, coffee pickers. Mm -hmm. And uh, then over time, you know, uh, they were actually classified as campesinos in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. uh, in El Salvador, uh, since the early uh, period right after independence, um, the racial categories were eliminated. And so uh, with that, so too were any ethnic histories, anyone crossing the border into El Salvador would have, would have um, come in with. Uh, so then we, you know, experienced the, the war. Uh, they mm -hmm. lived in the area of Santana that was close to Chalatenango, where there was a lot of um, uh, warfare and, and uh, upheaval going mm -hmm. on, a lot of displacement. So then we crossed another border into the United States. I was uh, just 13 months old when I came to this country, and I was raised in L.A. in South Central L.A. Mm -hmm. And at the time, in the 1980s and early 90s, uh, it was a predominantly black and brown community. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, and you're going to laugh, but uh, Mexican girls wouldn't play with me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because because there was a you know this a, a longstanding conflict between mm -hmm. Latinos uh, it, among the in the Latino community, specifically between uh, Mexicanos and Salvadoreños, mm -hmm. Centroamericanos. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of times we think about uh, that that tension as something that is much more recent, but it's it's got a long history. You mm -hmm. know, the tension between. Central American immigrants and um, Mexicanos in, in L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
my play group was actually um, consisted of mostly of ab speaking African American vernacular English speaking mm-hmm. uh, black girls whose parents and grandparents were part of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them were coming from Mississippi and Louisiana, and you know had uh, settled their families in in uh, in South LA. So I think early on, I just kind of was uh, exposed to complexity of ethnicities, the complexity of origins, and, and this idea of borders not being just the U.S.-Mexico border, but many different borders and, mm-hmm. and how that shapes us, and specifically how that shapes language, right? So I actually learned English uh, with my playgroup, mm-hmm. and um, I, I it was an early onset of bilingualism, you know. I was uh, attentive to that. I was attentive to varieties of Spanish, too, because my parents spoke Spanish. Um, but I, I, as time went on, um, we didn't use voceo in the, mm. in, at home. We didn't use the voz at home. Mm. Um, we used more Mexican Spanish, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the home as, as things went on. And, and the media I was exposed to was more Mexican, you know. So I was exposed to Mexican music and Mexican movies and Mexican TV. And, you know, the big networks represented the bigger mm. Latino groups and not so much Central American. So I think uh, from, from an early age, I was kind of attuned to, like, complexities of ethnicity and complexities of, of Latino identity in the United States. Mm-hmm, right. Um, you and I, Jenny, have over a decade in higher education, both as students and educators, and we know often uh, that discussions about marginalized communities such as indigenous groups and black Latinos um, are still at the margins. Um, hence, in my view, we continue to make these voices and perspectives somehow invisible. And as you just shared your journey, um, you were in, you know, in constant interaction with many of these communities and voices. Much of your work and research addresses these issues and centers on, on these histories. In other words, you, your work um, advocates for a decolonial perspective of learning and studying Black and Indigenous communities. Tell us about this work. Yeah, so that's also um, you know, a multi-layered question. I think that um, one thing to remembers who's the we, right? And so I think there are um, complexities that we need to get at within the Latino community. We are, every time we cross the border, every time we establish ourselves in a new place, are bringing in our own conceptions of, of ethnicity and identity, right? So, for instance, in the Latino community, we are, um, you know, whether it's it's Mexico or Central America, um, we are used to not talking about race. And so there's a lot of denial, I would say, of mm-hmm. indigenous groups and uh, Afro-descendant groups, and specifically within that Afro-descendant category, black, uh, you know, black groups. Um, and the, the histories of Mesoamerica, right, of Mexico and Central America have been such that you know, we pay attention to class, or we pay attention to uh, social status and markers of social status. Mm-hmm. And then our censuses have completely eliminated those categories, right? So that mm-hmm. means that many of the representations we have of who we are as Mexicanos, who we are as Central Americans, um, has been 
limited to to uh, how that plays out kind of in an economic um, uh, fashion. Right. But it isn't until recently that, you know, the Mexican census just uh, started paying attention to to those racial categories and including them in the census. Right. In Central America, it wasn't until, you know, really long after the, the civil wars were over, after um, indigenous movements, uh, indigenous communities pushed for recognition of themselves as communities uh, within national boundaries that that we have kind of this rise of indigenous voices, uh, including Afro-indigenous voices like the Garifuna um, Mm -hmm. along the Central American Atlantic coast. Um, Greater recognition, too, of Creole uh, communities Mm -hmm. also on the Central American coast. Uh, and, and the fact that they speak, you know, not just Spanish, but also Creole English or Standard English. And so I think... It's in the last um, 30 years or so, and in Mexico even even more recently in the last decade or so, that we are beginning to see uh, the effects of, of racial denial, of, of ethnic denial in, in our communities and how we see ourselves. I think that then translates into, into new work here based in the U.S., by academics based in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Um, that looks at you know greater complexities within the Latino and Latinx community. In my work with media, what I'm most concerned mm-hmm. with is uh, the issue of distribution. So when we work with media, we look a lot at you know the content itself, right? Representations right. and 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 the matter itself. But we also look at um, you know reception and and distribution as factors that impact. Um, you know, the the longevity of a lot of those works. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think those voices have always existed. Those voices have led to, you know, independent newspapers or um, independent uh, journalism of, of other sorts, you know, of uh, nonfiction. And, and those voices have always existed. But what has been lacking is their their ability to circulate within Latin America and, and here in the Latino community as well. Yeah, and also in like prime time television, right? I think um, mm-hmm. I think about a lot of the shows that are available in networks and um, streaming networks um, like mm-hmm. um, Netflix, uh, prime time video, and and others um, mm-hmm. of shows that are uh, Latinx centered um, in their cast, but also directors and storylines. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, so just one example, the show One Day at a Time that was initially mm-hmm. in prime t- primetime television got canceled and then was picked up by Netflix, uh, <clears throat> which um, I mean, now nowadays we could almost say, you know, everybody has Netflix yet um, the, to um, to cancel a show that has a strong, you know, Latinx representation and Latinx issues as part of their, you know, the way they they tell their stories, um, uh, being canceled in prime time tells us a lot about maybe some of the things that you're looking into distribution. Like how do we, how do we not only create more but also make it um, into everybody's, you know, TV. Um, so that they're learning, understanding, uh, they're being represented, right? Um, 
not just on this streaming service that you have to pay separately for, uh, <clears throat> but on primetime television. Yeah, and that's that's what's really exciting about these times that we're in right now and the possibilities that electronic media and um, electronic um, distribution has for us, right? And, and so my kind of involvement with that end of things with, with media and all its possibilities really came from looking at what our Indigenous community is doing in Latin America, right? And so, of course, we have uh, the big media giants in Latin America, just like we have here in the mm -hmm. United States, right? Mm -hmm. We have big television networks, we have big, um, you know, uh, big film networks, too. But, you know, it's those voices are just not being distributed on that big stage, the big national stage, right? Mm -hmm. So what do indigenous communities turn to? They turn to alternative means of distributing their work, right? right? And so that took place mostly via the internet and, and YouTube became really, really big for um, distribution of, of indigenous media uh, alongside, you know, community radio, which has a, a longstanding tradition in, in Latin America. And it's the same here in the U.S. So you're absolutely right about those parallels. You know, we see that show canceled by a network only to be then picked up by an online distribution mm -hmm. means, mm -hmm. right? And and I think Netflix, Amazon Prime is where I'm finding a lot of uh, independent film right. uh, from Latin America and also Latinx made. Um, and, you know, we have we have a large film industry in this country, a longstanding tradition with Hollywood. But when it comes to content, you know, we run up against stereotypes. And when it comes to creators and when it comes to uh, distribution possibilities, it's, it's just been so limited. Right. And, mm -hmm. and we're seeing, um, you know, Amazon Prime or uh, Netflix take up these shows that would otherwise not be available to the general public. And all that said, you know, Latinos are um, in uh, an important, if not the most important group uh, attending movies and, and watching television mm -hmm. um, networks uh, these days. And, and so we have this this other alternative possibility that, that creators themselves are seeking out. Right, right. Um Jenny, over the past five years, and even more so in the past two years since the pandemic and the public lynching of George Floyd, we have been having discussions about how to have honest conversations with our students in, in bringing this into curriculum um, in classes across universities. Um, and obviously, some of the work with the media that you're talking is not just, um, you know, uh, when, when I think of media is not just, um, you know, film production or creative work, but also, you know, news pieces um, that um, that are, you know, populating our, our TVs. Um, so, you know, thinking about how to engage in conversations and real conversations where, with our students and really centering that into our classes and our curriculum is of concern to many of us, uh, you know, in academia at this moment, um, not only in higher education, but I imagine even in some way, although, you know, the K through 12 curriculum is being um, censored in a way with, um, you know, with the mm -hmm. uh, um, a problem with or with trying to limit uh, critical race theory in the classroom. 
Um, and so I, my question is um, of how we can sort of think really uh, about how to plan for our classes. How can we, what strategies um, can we, you know, can we implement on how to talk about indigeneity and blackness in the classroom, especially as it relates to the Latine community, right? Because um, as you mentioned, right, the the fact that the census and in, in, in Mexico or in other countries is just recently included, you know, marginalized communities that have been in existence for, you know, centuries <laughs> um, is... Mm-hmm a reflection of that sort of we're behind, right? We're behind in having these discussions or acknowledging that, um, you know, Afro-descendants are part of our history in Latin America. Um, so how do, how do we have these discussions? How do we bring these conversations into, you know, um, into, the, into the classroom? I have a colleague that says, negrear el, el sílabo, ¿verdad? Negrear el currículo. Um, how do we, how do we include this, these voices that are often sort of marginal to our conversations or like, you know, just kind of, we brush over them. Oh yeah, there's, there's this history, but the focus is not that the center of, you know, our discussions are not those communities. Yeah, that's another big question, right? <laughs> With many I, mean, layers. Yeah, I mean, we can have like maybe three podcasts. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's what's exciting, right? There's, there's just so many, so many different ways to kind of turn the lens onto the question, right? So one of the things that, that occurs to me first is that we have to remember that as academics, we are not producing necessarily, but we are definitely circulating and putting into distribution ideas, right? Mm-hmm. That That's what we do. Every time we assign a text, every time we design a course, you know, we are, are taking ideas and putting them into circulation and distributing them to a, an audience, right? Mm-hmm. So we do have that power. And I think we need to remember that we, that we, we occupy that position, Mm-hmm. So I think that's central, first of all. And so putting into circulation, not just print uh, media, right, whether that's books or or in the form of novels, in the form of poetry, but also including that digital media that is coming from the margins, I think it's critical. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely critical that we tear down that idea of, you know, what is highbrow culture and what is lowbrow culture and designating electronic forms as too low to uh, include in the classroom, I think is extremely significant at this point in time. Um, And why? For the same reasons I mentioned before, that those are the outlets that minority communities, whether they be minority Latinx communities or minority uh, racial, ethnic, linguistic communities in Latin America are are using and really putting to use and, and are a need uh, need to need for us to recognize right as as legitimate outlets for their work. I think that's central. Um, I also think thinking about um, you know kind of taking a step back and looking at it at an institutional level, uh, we are seeing a great growth in the number of Latinx uh, students mm-hmm. uh, coming into institutions, mm-hmm. right? And so we need to move beyond 
just the reciting a land acknowledgement, for instance, or you know, uh, posting a a a a letter uh, about the events in in Minneapolis, the killing right. of George Support, Floyd, yes. and just having it sit on the website for a couple of months and then taking it down. Mm-hmm. I think we move away, moving away from those kind of formal uh, stances that are merely rhetorical. Okay, so what would be the product of all this work, an article or a book? Yeah, so drawing from the perspective of hemispheric um, relationships and specifically Abiyala, which is the name we give to the Americas mm-hmm. uh, in recognition of the, the the transcontinental connections between indigenous peoples. Right now I'm, I'm working on a book that will look at uh, indigenous responses to environmental crises in uh, media. So I'll be looking at films and television, as well as uh, podcasts and other broadcasting uh, products, other broadcasts uh, related to to how indigenous communities are responding to the loss of land rights, the loss of uh, natural resources, and um, essentially the settler colonialism uh, mm-hmm. on their territories and looking at that from a comparative lens. Jenny, muchas gracias por esta conversación. Gracias a ti. Gracias a ti. I enjoyed this. Thank you. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.